0: Good evening. It is so good to see each of you this afternoon. If you will, be turning your Bibles to First Peter, the fifth chapter. If you're using a Bible in the pews, it's 1,078. 1,078. And we will be studying through uh, several verses in First Peter 5 and hope you'll open up your Bible and we'll study together. Uh, we've had a wonderful week here. We're so thankful this past Wednesday evening to have the opportunity to be led in a period of worship by our deacons, or at least some of our deacons, and we're thankful for Jason Haley and John Thomas and tremendous job they did in leading us in studies of gratitude. We're thankful for each one that participated in that and for John Michael and his organization of that. Uh, we're also thankful that uh, we have 93 additional parking spaces. Uh, that's something we desperately needed. And uh, we're thankful for Bobby Cole and Albert England. Uh, Bobby has given a lot of time uh, for several years. Uh, that that piece of property had to be dug out several feet all the way across. It's almost an acre that was dug out. And there's no telling how many tons of dirt was removed and how many tons of rock was added. And uh, many, many yards of concrete was poured. And this past Friday, a lot of stripes were put on Uh, to that surface and and all around our building. And there were a lot of other men that have helped throughout this process. And we're thankful to each one. And God is good to us. And He blesses us with the resources that we need. He always provides. There is no doubt God always provides what we need. And we're thankful to each one that that was a part of God's gift in making that uh, a reality. Also, we're thankful uh, this morning for the wonderful period of worship that we had. And we're so thankful for Jamie Harper. Uh, Jamie and Emily do so much in the life of this congregation and in the kingdom work as a whole. And uh, we're thankful for this family. And we're thankful for the good that's being done. And we also want to just give uh, each of you a reminder that if the recovery through Christ is something that would benefit your life right now, this is a wonderful time to inquire about it. Uh, The step programs that would, would be... A several month process of recovering through Christ uh, will begin soon. And there are already several that have interest in this and they're waiting for this to begin. And so this would be a perfect time for you to ask more questions and maybe you want to jump into the middle of that and you want to be able to put some things that's in your present right now into your past. And maybe you want to be able to have a life that is whole, that only the great physician can do. And so that kind of healing is found only in Christ. And it's not that this program is something magical or mystical. It's that this program is helping individuals walk closer with their God than what they have done in the past. It's a great place for healing. And if you want to know more about that, you may not know Jamie Harper very well. An easy way to get in touch with Jamie is go to our website, www.mountjuliet.org, and you will see the icon For Recovery Through Christ, it's a a crown of thorns, and you'll see that. Click on that, and you'll read more about what is done, but also it'll give you information to get in touch with Jamie, and he would be glad to talk with you and help you in any way uh, that he can, and that particular program and ministry can be about. As already has been prayed many times today, and hopefully it's been prayed thousands of times over the past uh, week, and it is about our leadership. We should be grateful for the leadership we have, but we should be very sobered and feel very heavy responsibility when we think of the responsibility to add additional elders and deacons to those existing um, men at the present time. When we think about the future of this church, the reality is the future of this church does not rest upon the shoulders of the teenagers. The future of the church doesn't rest upon the fact of whether or not we get a parking lot complete or or a facility added on to. The future of the church is not based upon whether or not we come up with some kind of marketing idea to reach the community around us. If you want to look at a few things that will directly and greatly affect the future of this congregation, it will be the elders that are put into place this congregation will go the direction of her elders. And if she doesn't, it would be a church split. But if she does follow the direction of her elders, the elders will have more to do about the future of this congregation than anyone else on earth. And so it is. We want to look at a study tonight that, the first part of this study, we want to look at it from the aspect that Maybe there would be very few here that need, emphasis on need this, but yet all of us should be reminded of this. And it is that we're discussing the Lord's church, ownership upon the Lord, and one of the most important things that we could do is pause right there and say, we want to do this the Lord's way. And so when we think about the message that we're about to study right out of God's Word, we could go up and down this road and we could go all throughout this community and we could stop into religious places and we could say, let's look at the leadership as it's taught in the Scriptures and there would be dis- disagreements. They would say, oh, that, that's not necessary. You don't, you don't really need elders. Oh, well, what you're speaking about isn't really what the Lord had in mind. Listen, when we look in Scriptures, we see that the style of leadership that God gives is pastoral. Now, before you slip off the edge of your seat there, I'm using the word the way the Bible uses the word, not the way our religious community uses the word. The word pastor is the word for shepherd. That's the style of leadership that God gives, it's pastoral leadership, it's plurality of leaders. In other words, it's shared leadership. For example, when we put those two together, you will never read this phrase in the Bible. The shepherd or the pastor of our congregation, find that in the Bible anywhere. Find the pastor in the congregation anywhere in the Scriptures. It doesn't exist. In the Scriptures, pastoral leadership is a plurality of leadership. It's shared leadership. It's always male leadership in the Scriptures. It always is a leadership that is based upon servanthood and not, as we'll see tonight, lordship. It's based on example and leading the way to Christ instead of trying to drive people with authority toward Christ. It's interesting when we read of some individuals that are considered scholars in our religious communities, and I'll read from one that is deceased a few years ago. And isn't it interesting that they seem to know so much about the background of Scriptures, and they seem to know so much about the culture? of certain situations when events took place in the scriptures and when they were being written, but what they seem to struggle with is the very text itself. Could you read through the scriptures and not see the pattern of leadership that was given as the church matured? Here's what George Eldon Ladd said. He was uh, the author of The Theology of New Testament. He was a former professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. And notice this quote. It appears likely that there was no normative pattern of church government in the apostolic age and that the organizational structure of the church is no essential element in the theology of the church. Now, Can you imagine? Can you imagine studying the New Testament and saying, in the first century we just don't find a pattern of leadership? What book are you reading? Listen, it's not us that came up with the idea of an office of eldership. It's not us that came up with long passages to give the qualifications of the men that are serving eldership. It's not us that came up with the responsibility of the qualified men to serve in this. Listen, it's not us that came up with the responsibility of the congregation to the men that are qualified that serve in this office. There's a lot more said in the Bible about the pattern of the organization of leadership in the New Testament than they're said about the Lord's Supper, than said about the spiritual gifts that each one of us are given. And we could go on and on and on and mention many topics that these writers would write on and on and on about, but when it comes to the organization of the leadership of the Lord's church, these supposedly scholars say, we just don't have enough information to work with. Tonight I want to begin by simply making this point from Scripture so that you and I will be reminded That what we are a part of right now in selecting elders and deacons is we are a part of something that is almost two thousand years old, and it's not our design. It's that we submit to God's design. When we look in First Peter the fifth chapter, you see that the topic is about shepherds. I would like for you to back up and look at 1 Peter, the first chapter in verse 1, and see who is Peter writing to. In 1 Peter 1 and 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who's he writing to? To the pilgrims of the dispersation in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We have five provinces in Asia that are Roman provinces. And who is he writing to? He's writing to these about what? When we come to the fifth chapter, he's writing to them about the eldership. Now isn't that interesting that if there is not an organizational pattern of the leadership of the church at this point, Why was he able to speak of something in the fifth chapter and really not elaborate upon it as much as, hey, this is exactly who I'm talking about and and so on. In other words, he didn't have to say, hey, you've never heard of this before, but let me talk with you for just a moment about elders. No, he spoke to them about the eldership as if, if you're part of the Lord's church, you're going to know this. Now, when we go back to Acts, if you will, drop back to Acts. You remember in Acts the 11th chapter, there was going to be a collection that was going to be sent back to help the Judean area that was in famine. Now where was this going to be delivered? In Acts 11 and 30, this is where Barnabas and Saul were to take this gift. It says, this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So now we're back much earlier than the time we just read in 1 Peter. So now we're back much earlier. And what do we see in in the Jerusalem area? We see that this, this money was going to be given to elders. In other words, they were going to be the overseers that would collect this money and disperse it among Christians in that area that would have need. We already see as early as Acts, the 11th chapter, that now the apostles, they were a part of the infant church. As the church matured, the apostles were not replaced and elders began taking over the leadership of each local congregation. We see that taking place in Jerusalem as early as Acts 11th chapter. We see the first missionary journey in 13th and 14th chapter. Look at the end of the 14th chapter in verse 23. Now he, they're going to go back on their missionary journey. They're going to go back through Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And what are they going to do in each of these places in 23? So when they had appointed elders, notice how it's a plurality each time? They appoint elders where? In every church, and they prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When we go to Acts the 20th chapter, Paul thinks that he will never see the church at Ephesus again. Who did he call down to talk to in Acts, the 20th chapter? Notice in verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and he called for the elders of the church. What are we seeing here? Now, when we go back to 1 Peter, the 5th chapter, we see that he's talking to elders. And, and if, if you have, uh, and I don't know if geographically if you can see this in your mind. But in, in the world where New Testament Christianity was spreading about, we see it beginning down here in Jerusalem, and then we see the missionary journey where the, where the church has grown here. And then we see Peter saying, well, I'm going to write to some more churches up here in Asia, in Asia Minor. And then we even see from, from Thessalonica that we see texts that talk about elderships there, those that have the rule over you. W- what are we getting at here? We're getting at something that's real simple, but it is powerful. When you saw throughout the New Testament, the spread of the New Testament church, what goes right along with the spread of the Lord's church is elders and deacons. Listen, I don't know how to stress it so that you and I would just immediately feel the weight of it. But please get this. We are about something in this process that is so much greater than you and I individually. It is a way to submit to God's plan so that this church forever, this congregation forever remains a part of the Lord's church. If at any time we start doing things the way we want to do it, we'll cease being the Lord's church. And we'll just be another religious institution that meets somewhere up and down North Mount Juliet Road. What is it that we need to learn if if we're going to be the Lord's church? Let's go now over this passage of 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, and let's see what he says to these individuals. If we were reading all the way through 1 Peter right now, we just read the first verse of 1 Peter and he identified himself as an apostle. After that verse, he doesn't refer to himself personally again until we come to the fifth chapter. I'd like for you to just note that in the fourth chapter, beginning about verse 12, down to the end of the chapter, he writes some very strong words to the entire church about how we all ought to be ready for a purification of judgment. In other words, it comes down to this. You're not going to make it as a Christian unless you're willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. Now that's true for any of us at any given time, but you better believe it was true for them in that day and time because within about two years after Paul writes First and Second Peter, it's believed that that's when Nero had him persecuted. And if you've never read of all the harsh forms and the multiplicity of persecutions and martyrs that Nero created under his dynasty of persecution, it was horrific. And it is believed that Peter was one of those. And it is believed that one of the motives for Peter writing, First and 2 Peter, was to prepare the church for such difficult days that were to come. And so he was preparing the church as a whole that he's writing to all over Asia there. He's preparing the church for this hard times of persecution. As a matter of fact, the word Christian is only used in the New Testament three times. And one of those times that's used is back up there in verse 16 of the fourth chapter, where he says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. In other words, when you see your brother, maybe your physical brother, That is dying as a Christian. You throw up your arms and say, why are the wicked people winning? And Peter's writing and saying, don't think the wicked people are winning. Christ just was magnified. That's a good thing. Glory be to Christ. Now with that being said, he's speaking to the entire congregation. He narrows his focus in the very next chapter when he says in the fifth chapter in verse one, the elders who are among you, I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. He's been talking to the greater whole. And now he says for a minute or two, he says, let me just talk to the elders that are scattered among you. And he identifies himself here to put himself on a mutual ground with elders. Here Paul, in a sense, was a veteran. He probably had served as either an apostle and now later in his life as an elder for over 30 years. And so he speaks to them saying... I'm walking in the same shoes you're walking in. He not only introduces himself as an elder, he introduces himself as a witness of the suffering of Christ. Remember that the root of the word witness is the same that we get the word martyr. And so what he's saying is, I would die for the cause of Christ. I know how Christ suffered, and I'm a witness. I'm not going to change my testimony. Hey, what do you think about Jesus Christ, Peter? And let me warn you, if you think that he suffered and he died and that he rose again, we're going to kill you. And Peter says, I'm a witness. In other words, I'll be a martyr. I'm not changing my testimony just so I can live physically. I'm going to stand on the truth of who Jesus is. I saw him suffer and I'm standing with him even if I need to suffer. And then he said, I'm a partaker in the glory. Listen, when we're willing to suffer as a Christian with Christ, we do just that. We suffer with Christ. And just as he's coming back again one day and he's going to share glory with all of those that have shared in his suffering, Peter is speaking in a sense of of predicting the future to say, that glory that's coming, I'm going to be a partaker of that glory. So did you get that in verse 1? Peter, who are you? He says, I'm an elder just like some of you are elders. I'm one that I've witnessed the suffering of Jesus Christ and I'm going to be a partaker of His glory. In other words, i witness, I'll suffer with Him, but I'll share in His glory. Please get this simple point out of verse 1. When we're looking at a man that would be qualified to be an elder, he must already be a man that's willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. And he must live his life longing to be a partaker of the glory of Christ. This is something that the whole church, all Christians ought to have in their life and in their heart. A willing to suffer for the cause of Christ and to share in the glory. But there must be leaders. And the ones that are to lead this congregation in the suffering... And the partaking of the glory must be the elders of the church. But notice as he speaks of the elders here, he talks now about a different term that is not describing another office. It's just a different term that helps us understand this office. As a matter of fact, it's two more terms. Look at verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God, which among you, serving as overseers... Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not by, for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Did you notice there he says, shepherd the flock? And did you notice again the reminder of who that flock belongs to? Shepherd the flock of God. It's very important for elders to always be aware of the fact that they are to be shepherds. That's one who literally tends the sheep. How do you think Peter knew so much about tending sheep? How do you think that was readily upon his mind? Do you remember when Peter denied the Lord that he knew the Lord three times? And do you remember after the resurrection, there was that breakfast where Jesus prepared breakfast for them? And you can imagine eating that delicious breakfast, and then Jesus turns to Peter and he asks him three times, Do you love me? And you remember each time after that, the answer would go like this, Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Here's a man that now, about 30 years later, would be writing this, and I can't help but think that probably the words of Jesus are still echoing in his mind. What is an apostle to do? What's an elder in the Lord's church to do? And he would hear the words of Jesus, Take care of my sheep. Tend my sheep. Look after my lambs. Listen, Jesus Christ is not concerned about some power struggle. He doesn't put it in place so a man can feel big about himself. He doesn't put this office in place so that everybody can look up and say, ooh, when he walks down the foyer. Jesus puts this in place because he loves every soul that is here. There shouldn't be a man that wants to lead in the Lord's church unless he can look around and say, I want to help these people get to heaven. I want to feed the truth to these people. I want to fight the false teachers so that they can't hurt these people. And when they're broken, I want to come and offer healing to them. Think in your mind of the 23rd Psalm. What are the three things that we learn about a shepherd in the 23rd Psalm? We learn how they provide the food and the water. They provide. We learn how they protect the staff and the rod. They comfort me. Why? Because there's enemies surrounding me. And Lord, as long as you're with me as my shepherd, you take care of me. And then, when we're broken, what does the good shepherd do in the 23rd chapter? He anoints our head with oil. He takes care of our wounds. Out of all the ways Peter could have discussed and studied the topic of an eldership, what does he say? He says, I'm an elder right along with you. And you know what I want you to do? I want you to remember, your job is to take care of sheep. And notice you live among them. You don't live higher than them. You don't live apart from them. You live among them. Constantly feeding them. Constantly protecting them. Constantly offering healing for them. So that we all can spend eternity together with the great, great shepherd. But he didn't just use the word shepherd. He also used a word that carries a great bit of authority. He, he says also an overseer. The form of this word is also translated a few other times in our English Bible, overseer. And that other word that's a form of this word is also the same word that at other times is translated overseer. In other places, it's translated bishop. For example, if you just want to see that, you might want to make a note of this if you want to study this further. In Acts, the 20th chapter and verse 17... Those men that were called down were called elders. But when we get to verse 28, they were told that they were to be overseers. And that same Greek word for overseer is the word that we have in First Timothy, the third chapter in the qualifications of the elders. When in verse 2, he talks about a bishop must be. It's the very same word as overseer in Acts 20 and 28, who is talking to the very same men that he called down as elders. Now, all I'm trying to do for you there is let you see how the Bible fits together so that these are just descriptive terms that come together to help us understand the greater whole of the responsibility of elders. In other words, it's not, we have one group of men that are elders, we have one group of men that are shepherds, we have one group of men that are bishops. No, when you look at these words, they're used to describe the very same men in the very same settings and all of these different terms are just to help us understand, just like in this passage here. Peter, how do you want elders to see their task? He says, I want them to see their task. As Number one, he called them elders. They're going to be seniors. It's not going to be young men that are going to do this. It's not going to be beginners. And I don't have time to elaborate, but you remember a while back we studied in the, in the New Testament times, there was no such thing as middle age. You, you, you either were a young man or you were an old man. And so the, the, the other is, is elder, it's senior. But then we also see, he describes them as shepherds, tending, take care of the flock. But then he describes them as overseers. Somebody has to take the leadership. That's the idea of overseer. Somebody has to be in charge. This congregation is either headed toward heaven or we're not. And it's up to the eldership to say, we'll take the oversight. We will be responsible for the direction of this congregation. Now, I want you to note here, you can look right there, we don't have to elaborate upon it, but along with the duty also becomes the ambition. In other words, there needs to be a motive that moves a man to want to do this. And he tells three things it shouldn't be, and each time he tells a thing it shouldn't be, he tells what it ought to be. For example, did you notice that in verse 2? Not by compulsion... A man ought to not serve because his wife wants him to, because his family wants him to, because a friend wants him to, because he feels like that nobody else is going to do it, because the situation dictates it. No, a man should not serve by compulsion, but notice the rest of that, but willingly. And some translations and it could be accurately translated, but God will. In other words, a man should only want to serve as an elder if he wants to see God's will done in the place and where he worships. But notice also another reason it should not be for dishonest gain. This is the same word that's also translated in Titus 1 and 7 about not for greedy money, and then also in 1 Timothy 3 and 3, not for greed. In other words, it should not be money that drives man. How many of us have seen men work long hours, and make huge sacrifices to make money. He's saying, I don't want a man to serve as an elder for greed, but I do want him to be eager about what he does. What about if a man served as an elder and instead of greed driving him, what if it was a love for souls? And seeing souls reached, seeing souls nurtured, seeing souls edified and protected. But then he gives a third description here in verse 3. Not as Lord's over those entrusted you, but instead be an example. Mankind has always had a difficult time with this. We tend to let authority go to our head. Our human nature is we want power. And Jesus continually with his apostles looked at the Pharisees or at the Gentile leadership and he would say, they lord over their people. And he would urge the apostles to realize that Christ leaders are not going to lord over individuals. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel the 34th chapter, I'd like to read one verse to you. This is a beautiful study and it's also a very discouraging study. In Ezekiel 34, we have a picture of bad shepherding and we have a picture of good shepherding. I'd like to read to you one verse that that gives a description of bad shepherding and then one phrase in the next verse. And this is Ezekiel 34. I'm going to be reading verse 4 and then the first phrase of 5. And he's talking about bad shepherds here and he says, The weak you have not strengthened. Here's what bad shepherds do. They don't strengthen the weak. Nor have you healed those who are sick. Nor bound up the broken. Nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost. it knows this phrase. But with force, remember what we just read? Peter says, don't lead as a Lord over them. And he says here, they've done it with force and cruelty. You have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd Well, how how do you know that these men weren't shepherds? And Ezekiel says, didn't you hear what I just said? A sheep was lost and nobody went after them. There wasn't a shepherd. There might have been a man in office, but there wasn't a shepherd. A sheep was broken and nobody was there to heal them. A sheep needed taken care of and food and nobody provided it for them. And what does Ezekiel say here? He says, now what we have is we have a flock that's scattered. They're broken. They're injured. Why? There was no shepherd. The task of an elder is to be not only the leader, but the leader by example and everything that's godly. And we close this by going back and reading the fourth verse. He's laid out some real strong, clear guidelines for an elder. He's talked about the duties, he's talked about the motive. What would be the ambition that would cause a man to do this? And then he closes with that reminder it's not your church, it's not your flock. It's the Lord's flock, and what's the Lord going to do in verse 4? And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Who's going to appear? The chief shepherd. The one who owns the flock. He's coming back. And he wants to make sure that the shepherds have taken care of His flock. And for those shepherds that have done that, the glorious crown that they're going to receive is going to be wonderful. I want to go to heaven. If you can say that, say that in your own mind right now and let it sink in. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to get sidetracked. I don't want to believe something that's wrong. I want to go to heaven. And if I'm serious about wanting to go to heaven, I better be prayerful and serious about the elders that lead me. Because according to the scriptures from our God, they have a lot to do with the souls of the flock. This evening, we want to help each other. Our religion is not about a building, our religion is not about ceremonies. Our religion is about real life, and souls, and caring for each other, and keeping our focus on the one who has ultimate care for us. And tonight, if there's anything that we can do as a church family to help care for you, we really do want to do it. If you're ready to be immersed into Christ, or if you're ready to come back to the family, or if you simply need prayers of burdens that are heavy in your life, or if right now all you have is a lot of questions and no answers, we'd love to walk with you and help you take the next step that's closer to God. But please, please be able to leave here tonight saying, I want to go to heaven and I'm on that path. If we can help you come as we stand, as we sing.